0: This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, June 22nd. I'm Gavin McGough.
1: And I'm Julia Caulfield.
0: In today's headlines, town diverts open space money to new fund.
1: Broadband is lit in San Miguel County.
0: Mountains to the Desert supports the kids.
1: And a mountain weather forecast.
0: 30 years ago, voters in Telluride adopted the 20% solution. They decided to put a fifth of town revenue towards purchasing and protecting open space, with a specific eye to Bear Creek and the valley floor. Town council member Jesse Ray Arguez recalls the atmosphere in town those three decades ago. It's probably one of the most monumental things that this community has ever undertaken. You know, like the, the level of passion and community engagement it was pretty, pretty magical and overwhelming. That's Arguez speaking at a town council meeting last week when the 20% open space allocation was on the agenda. This spring, town paid off its debts on the valley floor, freeing up a huge chunk of the open space budget. Now, the town of Telluride is wondering if it's time to redistribute some of that open space funding towards other projects. Town manager Scott Robson reports after meeting with the Open Space Commission, it appears they can fulfill their needs with only a quarter of the funds they
2: receive now. We believe that uh, 5% is is going to be more than adequate to maintain at a high level what we have. Um, we're sitting right now at a little bit north of $3 million in our open space uh, reserve funds, um, which would be used as uh, certainly seed money or, or uh, partial match money to go after any grants of acquisitions in the future. The proposal
0: Robson is working towards would break up the 20%. So only 5% of town revenues would go towards open space. Then town would have the remaining 15% for other projects. Town attorney Kevin Geiger says town staff considered options.
3: About whether should you just drop the 15% into either the
0: general fund or the capital fund. We think, and this is for your consideration, but we think it might make sense to actually identify that 15% is going into a separate fund. You could bond against it. You could pledge against it for COPs. The bonding and pledging Geiger mentions are ways of leveraging town's money to borrow additional funds, or essentially take out a loan to complete projects. Currently, town is attempting to budget for an expensive wastewater treatment plant expansion. Open space money could be diverted to address some of the critical wastewater needs. Then, town's capital fund would not be so drained, and it could address other town projects currently speaking of the town's capital fund, Robson says
2: I think over the last year or two we've been averaging almost four four million transferred out towards wastewater and so we'll have just a, a much more robust um, capital improvement fund over time where we can now go after more aggressively those just various capital improvements we've talked a lot about over the last year now so that's a that's kind of a, a trickle-down benefit of this strategy considering the proposal, Arguez
0: says it doesn't feel like the reallocation is council's choice. Since this was a voter-initiated decision and it was on a ballot years ago, um, I think that it should the 15% that we're considering to reallocate should be should go back to the voters. And Councilmember Dan Enright, however, says a voter referendum would significantly complicate the process. And it's clear to him that in the past three decades,
3: Telluride's needs have changed. I feel very strongly that there is next next to no one in our community that thinks we should continue to allocate this amount of money towards open space. Not saying completely defunding our open space fund or any of that, but I believe there is near unanimous consent within the town of Telluride that we have other higher needs, wastewater, housing, gondola, et cetera. The idea that we are going to get that many cooks in the kitchen for the minutia of our budget... To me, is a little extreme. Other
0: council members agree. The ordinance passed with all members except Arguez voting in favor. The ordinance will come before town council once more before being finalized, at which point town will direct 15% of its revenues into a new fund named the Reserve Capital Fund. That will be aimed at tackling town projects which are not related to open space. It might have come at a snail's pace, but expanded access to high speed internet has arrived
4: in San Miguel County. This was initially conceived back in the early 2000s, um, and through numerous grants, a total project cost of about three just over $3 million um, allowed us to secure dark fiber that was already in place and then build out fiber optic. Uh, through the areas of Telluride and Norwood. That's County Manager
0: Mike Bordonia discussing the decade-long project to bring broadband internet to all corners of the county. Broadband internet access was already largely available here, but the network of physical wiring providing access was unorganized and piecemeal. The county and the Telluride Foundation teamed up around 2014 with the goal of improving the network. Laying out a map of the project testifies to the long list of collaborators and
4: stakeholders involved in connecting the county west to east. Uh, USDA funded the Telluride Foundation and county to pay for the build of 21 miles of new fiber between Nuclea and Norwood. At that point, it jumps on to the tri-state dark fiber um, all the way over to the Sunshine Substation at Sampa. Then we leased dark fiber from Sampa up to Society Turn, and then a new build um, occurred um, into Telluride, then to all the anchor institutions, schools, libraries, government uh, facilities. As Bordonia explained, the project was
0: a mix of installing new wiring and gaining the right to use existing infrastructure. Bordonia says, It's like there were orphan segments of trail. (laughs) To continue the trail metaphor, while previously a hiker walking the internet trails of the county would have to cross private property and would meet many a dead end, now the right-of-way is continuous and secure. Acquiring those rights
4: involved contacting and negotiating with numerous property owners and, says Bordonia. as far as this, I I don't think anybody expected that it would take this long to negotiate with tri-state and then to uh, achieve all those 63 landowners where the tri-state line goes through to actually sign off. Um, But I'm really thankful that The county and the foundation uh, kept going with this project because it will be a game-changer as far as the the internet product that our residents and businesses will ultimately be able to have. Those game-changing benefits include increased
0: security and reliability. Previously, there was only one line of cable coming into Telluride. Over the years, issues with the line have led to complete internet outages in town. The county's project has secured a second cable. And Bordonia
4: says, Now that we've become so reliant on internet uh, services, to have a secondary fiber connection to the community um, is going to just make it safer and more prosperous. Another benefit of that second cable, says Bordonia. It also brings in the ability for more uh, competition in the internet service provider marketplace. And we all know that competition. Usually makes for better offerings, sometimes lowering of prices. Residents curious about how their internet service will be impacted by the additional
0: wiring network should contact their provider to see if their connection security, redundancy, or cost will change.
1: Hop on a bicycle and it can get you from point A to point B, or it can get you out in the wild and beautiful parts of the landscape or it can help raise money for a good cause. If it's the mountains to the desert bike ride, it does all three.
5: It really is considered the, the best 100 miler on the western slope. Leaving Telluride first thing in the morning, um, September 23rd this year for everyone that uh, that isn't aware of it yet. Um, we ride all the way down to Gateway, which is an average downhill ride because we are going from the mountains down to the desert. And I'll tell you, the last 30 miles of that ride where you're going through the Red Canyon country, um, you feel like you're in a national park.
1: That's Eric Fellanias, founder of Mountains to the Desert Ride. Mountains to the Desert is the funding mechanism for the Just for Kids Foundation, which provides grant funding for organizations and individuals that enrich the lives of children in the San Miguel watershed. We've been able to award
0: just a little under $3 million to uh, local nonprofits, individuals, organizations that support children in this watershed. So um, we're really proud of that, and uh, we
2: hope
1: uh, we can continue to do that. That's Elaine Dimas, president of the Just for Kids board. Just for Kids was started by local land developer Bill Karstens. This year, the Mountains to the Desert bike ride is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Organizers are hoping for 200 riders to participate. Demas notes a variety of cyclists makes the event a community affair.
0: When you ride Mountains to the Desert, you're not really alone. You're doing it with a lot of people. There are a lot of different pelotons of different, you know, abilities. People are going, you know, the guys that are winning are just in a different league. And there's like a whole bunch of us that just do it for the fun to be out on a beautiful day. And it is so beautiful riding down that canyon. I mean, there's just nothing like it. And I think a century rides go. um, this is probably the easiest ride there is.
1: But Fellainius notes, that doesn't mean it's all rainbows and sunshine.
5: Whenever you do 100 miles, even if it's downhill, it's still 100 miles. You're sitting in the saddle. It's a fast ride, relatively speaking, Um but you feel it. The last, the, that last 30 miles as you're going through this gorgeous canyon, uh, you definitely your butt hurts a little bit.
1: And of course, riders doing the whole course have to face Norwood Hill.
5: It's downhill average, but it's definitely up and down. And, and you're right, Norwood Hill is two miles, uh, and it's not a bad hill. The bad part about it is when you come around the corner at the bottom and you start climbing, you see the entire hill. Uh, so there's there's nothing hidden. It's right there, and it really looks ominous, but it's not that bad. It's only two miles.
1: In addition to the ride itself, Just for Kids and Mountains to the Desert will join in the 4th of July parade.
5: We really want to celebrate cycling and, and Telluride in general. Uh, so we're inviting anyone and everyone on two wheels, uh, young and old, We don't care what bike you want to uh, ride. I'll be on my townie.
1: The 20th annual Mountains to the Desert Ride will take place on September 23rd with a 103-mile ride from Telluride to Gateway. Registration for the ride is available at m2dclassic.com.
0: Telluride is made up of people from all across the world. With June as Immigrant Heritage Month, This weekend, the community is coming together for a community fiesta. The party will include fun for the whole family with free food, mariachi, games, and a piñata. The community fiesta will take place under the bra in Town Park on Saturday, June 24th from 1.30 to 4.30 p.m.
1: Past winners have ranged from humble historic sheds to the stately turrets on the Nugget Building. These are Telluride's Historic Preservation Award winners, which are awarded by the town every other year. The Preservation Award began in 2008 to recognize restoration and construction projects and the designers, contractors, property owners behind them, which display a dedication to protecting Telluride's historic character. Projects eligible for this year's round of winners must have been started after January 1st of 2019 and completed before May 28th of this year. To nominate a project for consideration, go to bit.ly slash TOT Preservation Awards. The nomination form closes tomorrow, Friday, June 24th at 4 p.m.
0: If this summer has been a strange one, with tempestuous weather postponing sunshine fun, it's only about to get more bizarre. That's bizarre, actually, as this weekend marks Telluride's favorite summertime craft market, the Summer Arts Bazaar, hosted in the Telluride Arts HQ Galleries on Main Street. The market features local crafters and artists peddling gourmet foods, clothing and jewelry, skincare products fine housewares, and much more, all handmade. The market opens Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. and continues from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday.
1: The Southwest Health Systems Board of Directors announced on Monday they will not be closing the family birthing center in Cortez. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Chris Clements of KSJD has this report.
3: This comes after a contentious special board meeting last Thursday where several community members shared their concerns about the possible closure. Hospital officials previously said they're temporarily closing the birthing center on July 1st in order to keep the organization financially stable. A press release from the hospital announcing their decision to reconsider was released on Monday. About 60 people, including several mothers, showed up to the board meeting last week near the hospital's emergency services wing to voice their deep concern over the future of maternity care at SHS. A Cortez resident and mother named Cindy McNeil spoke at the meeting about her daughter, who is pregnant and was due to give birth after the birthing center would have closed. And
1: that's where at right now, is that our hospital has abandoned young mothers, young women, and children. Babies will die. I guarantee babies will die, if not young mothers.
3: Joe Thomason, a representative from Community Hospital Corporation, which manages the hospital, apologized to the community for his handling of the situation.
5: You know, really, without involving the, getting the doctor's input, that truly, um, In hindsight, it was really, really poorly executed, and that's on me.
3: Some at the meeting demanded that the SHS board find a way to part ways with Community Hospital Corporation. For KSJD, I'm Chris Clements.
0: Climate disaster zones may not be at the top of your list of destinations this summer, but you can let a book take you there. A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water, brings readers from the wildfire country of the American West to the outer banks where homes are being swallowed by the sea. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Shannon Young spoke with the book's author, David Gesner.
6: If folks are hearing this and thinking, I don't know if I (laughs) want to go to the end of the world, where exactly are you going and why?
7: Well, I think in the beginning of the book, I say, come with me on a tour. And I say, believe it or not, we can have a little fun and we go to beautiful places. But we also go to fragile places where climate change is not often the future, but is happening now. Um, and one of those places is Boulder, Colorado.
6: <laughs> right. I w- you know, We were just chatting right before we opened the mics that the last time you were here with me, you were presenting a Thoreau-inspired book at the at, about the natural world, and it was so smoky out that we couldn't even see the flat iron. So why are you back to present your book here in Boulder?
7: Well, there were dual origins for the book. Um, one was my daughter, who was a climate activist in high school and who went through a high school where two of her terms were hurricane-influenced, um, uh, where she, her high school became a shelter, and the rest were COVID. And she said, doom is normal. So I started to ask scientists what the world would be like when my daughter was my age, which is 2062. And, uh, and the answers weren't pretty. But the other origin came here in Boulder, one of my, the first places I traveled after the pandemic and talked to you. And as you said, the sky was full of smoke, and I write in the book, I wanted to see where the smoke was coming from. So I did a pilgrimage to Paradise, California, where, of course, it had been ravaged two years before, but the new fire, the Dixie Fire, was coming in. And I spoke to people in diners, in bars, and one woman said to me, you know, people don't get that climate is a personal story. So it was a book of traveling to places and kind of being forced into writing the book. I didn't expect to write about climate. I visited Ken Slight, who some people might know as Seldom Seen Smith from the Monkey Wrench Gang. You know, he was a character in that, Abby's book, and his his Quonset hut, where he kept all his memorabilia, his articles, his essays, his notes from traveling with Abby, had been incinerated in the Pack Creek fire. I arrived um, two days later. We were at his wife's birthday party. We heard, heard a rumbling. And a flash flood was coming down like a freight train down the valley with trees and boulders. And it was like, holy crap, I think this is something I have to focus on. And of course, I live on the hurricane coast of Carolina, where we're always threatened. Very similar to the West with fires.
6: Well, uh, in your experiencing visiting these areas that have become even more prone to natural disasters due to climate change. Were there any patterns that you saw emerging?
7: Yeah, you know... Um, I've traveled through the Outer Banks for years now with a uh, scientist named Oren Pilkey, and we've watched these storms as they push the banks back. And, you know, naturally an island will migrate toward the shore, but when you draw a line in the sand with trophy houses, it can't do that. So I found a real parallel between what's happening out here, you know, where fire season is, which is, of course, spread through the whole year, as we know from the most recent fire, um, but the apprehension about fires is similar to the apprehension about um, hurricanes where I live. So, you know, if you had a final four of climate disaster areas, we'd be in there, and maybe, you know, Phoenix would be meeting us in the finals.
6: You know, I kind of cringe when I hear the overuse of the term resilience when speaking about folks who have to constantly bounce back and and rebuild from from these disasters, because it really comes down to survival. So what kinds of survival skills did you learn about from those who lived experience in the process of writing this book?
7: Well, first, let me agree with you about cringing. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I wrote the book is I was very tired of the tropes of hope, the tropes of disaster. I feel like climate writing is in a very immature stage, and that's part of the problem. Not just telling the story, which everybody talks about, but you know, you don't read a novel looking for bullet points at the end, right? You don't, you know, I've done interviews with people who haven't read the book and I'll say it's not about policy and this book isn't about hope. And there will be a pause and they'll say, what about hope? What about policy? You know, so I, I tried to kind of rip apart the cliches. There's humor in the book, there's me meeting people and there is resilience. Um, I'll give an example: is Ryan Lambert, who lives in southern Louisiana, where the land is being, you know, as we know, famously football fields going away per day. And he, single-handedly, um, got a, with a grant from Ducks Unlimited, redirected part of the Mississippi and the sediment rebuilt some of the land near his uh, near his riding lodge. And the other moment of hope. I'm hope, not hopeful, but I felt hope when I was up at the source of the Colorado, straddling the Colorado, the the water lifeblood that gives 36 million people its water. And it was this beautiful swirling day. And I was like, nature is the source. Now, we we might not recognize that and it might not help us, but to me, it's still a hopeful thing.
6: In our final minute, I just want to ask, I mean, in your book, you, you, you bring a lot of humor to it, even though it, the subject matter is pretty grave. Uh, what is the importance of just having levity when uh, processing heavy topics?
7: I think we just repress when it comes to this. There's a chapter called Beneath the Ice, and I think a lot's going on beneath the ice. We don't sit around and, you know, we're busy this morning. We're doing this interview. We're not sitting here thinking about our death or our doom or 50 years in the future. So humor is a way to kind of ease people in to like trying to say, how about we unrepress for a minute? How about we really do think about our children or their children? And if I can get them to a place where they're following me in these interesting uh, routes, then um, I think I can bring them to really imagining what that world's going to be like 50 years from now. Will that do any good? I don't know, but I think it's important for us to do.
6: I've been speaking with author David Gessner. His brand-new book is A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water. David, thanks so much for joining me in the studio this morning.
7: Thanks. See you in a couple years. Hope it's not smoky.
1: (laughs) The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 45 degrees. Friday should be sunny during the day and clear at night with a high near 70 degrees and a low near 40. Saturday expects sunny skies with a high in the mid-70s. Saturday night should be clear with a low around 40. This has been the news for Thursday, June 22nd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story, idea, or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.